reading this morning from Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Good morning. I want to begin with a question this morning for you to consider, just to think about your life and how you view your life. Do you tend to look at God through your circumstances? Or do you look at your circumstances through God? In other words, do you look at God, but he's clouded by what's going on in your life, and what dominates in your vision is your immediate circumstances? Or are you learning to really see God first? so that your circumstances are put in proper perspective by what you see of God. A friend of mine, I'll call her Betty, (laughs) realized she'd been putting other things first in her life. She decided, I really want you to be Lord. I want to love you, Lord, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so she stepped out. She took a risk, and it was hard for her because she was an introvert, but she stepped out to volunteer in in a ministry that she knew of. Well, it started out pretty well. She was excited to be serving God, to be involved in what he was doing in the world. It was very encouraging. And then pretty quickly, though, it got hard. She found herself in conflict with one of the other volunteers. They couldn't seem to work out their relationship. She got discouraged because it seemed like what she was doing in ministry didn't have really any impact. People didn't respond to her leadership. And she found herself struggling more and more with her own kind of sinful attitudes, resentment towards some of the people there and thinking, I could run this ministry better than they do. And she began to feel like, why am I even in this? God, I wanted to follow you. 
I, I stepped out. I took a risk. How come you're not in this? This can't be your will, God. She wanted to quit. If you've walked with God very long in life, you've probably had a similar experience. <laughs> you get excited about God, you, you decide, Lord, I really want to give you my heart. I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so I'm going to step out and follow you. And then it doesn't go that well, and we get discouraged. Somehow, and I don't know where we get it, but we all seem to get these expectations that somehow if I'm serving God, if I'm really giving myself to Him, then life should go better. People will like me more. <laughs> It'll be successful. My marriage will improve. My car will get better gas mileage. <laughs> I'll get a bonus at work. And then things get hard. And we're shocked. We're amazed by that. And we struggle and we want to quit. Part of the problem is, of course, with our expectations. God never promises that things will go well if we serve Him. In fact, they often get harder. Because we're stepping off the sidelines right in the middle of the battle. We're now at the forefront of what God is doing in the world. And often the difficulties increase. That's the reality, but somehow we have the, our expectations wrong. But it does get hard often when we decide to serve God, and so we need to know where to go for encouragement when following Jesus gets discouraging. Well, in the book of Haggai in chapter 2, the people have returned to following the Lord. They're building the temple like Haggai exhorted them to but they're facing some real discouragement. And so, in this little chapter, chapter 2, God gives three messages through Haggai from God to encourage them to keep going on, to persevere. And as we study this through, we'll see how God wants to encourage us when following Him gets hard and discouraging so we can keep on keeping on as we serve our gracious Lord. So before we look at this cure for discouragement, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we admit we have wrong expectations sometimes when we step out to follow you. I pray for each of us here that we would commit ourselves to put you first, to make you the center of our lives, to build your house, not our own. But as we do so, Lord, we face discouragement. May you speak to us today as you spoke to the people of Israel through Haggai the prophet and may your words be clear by the power of your spirit that we might find encouragement, that we might learn to see circumstances through the reality of you rather than the other way around. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we're in Haggai 2. Again, if you can't find Haggai, remember it's the third to the last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew, turn left, go three chapters, three books, and there you'll find this little book of Haggai. In chapter 1, we saw last week how God exhorted through Haggai the people to put him first. They, for 16 years, had let the temple of God lie in ruins because they were afraid. 
afraid of conflict, afraid of what might happen. They were afraid of the economy. They were afraid of a number of things. And God came through Haggai and said, it's time to build the temple of God. It's time to put God first in your life to really seek Him. And it was an amazing response. They did that. They took about a month to get their affairs in order, to get ready, and then they gathered in the city of Jerusalem these remnant that came back from exile in Babylon, and they began to build the temple of God. Amazing response. God moved in their hearts to obey, and they did so. But now it's been about a month of building. About a month later, we know the exact date, October 17th, 520 B.C., the people are getting discouraged. There are several things that are discouraging them. The first we see in this first section is the problem of insignificance. What's he say in verse 4? He says, or verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, they've been building for a month. They're laying the foundation and it's starting to grow. But there's people who saw the old temple, which was destroyed in 586 B.C., 66 years before. So there were some that were very young. Now they're in their 70s and 80s. And they remembered that glorious temple of Solomon. It was amazing, folks. I mean, it was something where Solomon took seven and a half years to build. He had 150,000 laborers working on this amazing temple that he built. And David and all the people, Solomon, contributed literally tons of gold and silver and other goods. And the, this temple was ornate. It was gorgeous. And it inlaid with gold and silver all the way throughout. It was glorious. And some of those who are working now, remembered. The Babylonians had come in and completely destroyed the Temple of Solomon, but they remembered. And now they're beginning to grumble a little bit and they're beginning to, to say, gosh, you know, this thing's going to be nothing compared to Solomon's Temple. They only had a few thousand people that were gathered to try to build this and they were, didn't have gold and silver and all the things to help them and, and the riches... And they were using rubble. They were using these broken down, burnt out pieces of stone to rebuild the temple. And they were feeling like, wow, compared to the other temple, this thing's nothing. Our work's nothing. It doesn't matter. Notice that word, compared to. <laughs> Notice how comparison always discourages us. We compare ourselves to others. Much of our discouragement comes from comparing ourselves. Well, gee, my Sunday school class isn't as big as their Sunday school class. Or when I lead growth group, people don't engage as much as they do when Joe does. Or when I set up chairs as a ministry to serve behind the scenes, that's, that's nothing compared to preaching or teaching or leading somehow. So what I do doesn't matter what I am doing is insignificant. You see, comparison kills our courage. It discourages us and makes us want to quit. 
and our efforts seem to produce little results. It all seems like nothing. And the truth is, God seldom lets us see the results. He seldom lets us see what He's really doing behind the scenes through our efforts. Why? Because He wants to make sure that we don't take credit for what He's doing. (laughs) That we know it's really Him accomplishing it and not us. We're just learning to be faithful in following Him. So how can we be encouraged when we feel like our efforts are so insignificant they don't really matter? Well, he gives, God gives two great promises here to the people to counter this problem of discouragement. The first is the promise of his presence. His presence. Verse 4, he says, Be strong, take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Be strong, all the people. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What does he say? He says, take courage. Be encouraged as you work. Why? Because I am with you. I am in this. Essentially what God's doing here is he's renewing the covenant. Now, he says, go back to Egypt. Remember the covenant I made with the people of Israel when I brought you out of Egypt and I brought the ten plagues and I defeated the most powerful nation on earth and I led you through the wilderness for 40 years and I gave you the law and I protected you and led you into the promised land. That same God is with you today. That same covenant I'm renewing today. I am with you. So be encouraged. I am the Lord of hosts, he calls himself. In fact, nine times in this chapter, he uses that name for himself, the Lord of hosts. NIV says Lord Almighty, which is essentially the meaning, but more literally, it's Lord of hosts. And what that means is he's the Lord of the heavenly armies. He's all-powerful. And he's reminding them that, look, it seems like what you're doing doesn't matter but I'm in it. That same spirit that was in the people when I brought them out of Egypt, that same spirit is in you. You think you have little to offer, but you're wrong. The king of the universe is dwelling in you. He's at work through your efforts. You're not just teaching Sunday school kids or setting up chairs or serving coffee or welcoming people at the door. You're a vessel of the king of the universe of the universe, the Lord of hosts. Your work for me is never, ever insignificant. It's the promise of presence. I am with you. And secondly, he goes on in the next few verses, 6 through 9, to promise glory. The promise of glory. What's he say? He says, you know, I'm going to shake the nations. And this temple you're building that seems like nothing will be incredibly glorious. In fact, the glory that will be in this temple will be greater than the glory that was in Solomon's temple. I promise to fill it with glory. What is glory? Well, when Solomon built his temple... And he was done. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Shekinah glory. It was the visible presence of God 
in that temple. And he says, in this temple that you're working on now, it seems like nothing, but it will be more glorious because the very presence of God will be even more evident here. What's he saying? What's he talking about? Well, I think a a partial fulfillment came in shaking the nations and all when King Herod came to this very temple that these people were building. It took them four years to finish it. They finished it in 516 B.C., but it was not impressive. But 500 years later, nearly 500 years later, King Herod, a pagan king, said, I want to make this Jewish temple greater than it's ever been. And he poured gold and silver and all kinds of things. It's as if God was taking this pagan king and shaking him upside down, like the passage says, and pouring his gold and silver and efforts into this new temple that became incredibly glorious. He took some 40 years building it. It was impressive. But you know what? That's not the main fulfillment of what Haggai's saying here. The real fulfillment came when Messiah, the living presence of God, walked in this very temple. Nearly 500 years later, when Jesus was brought to this temple. Listen to this verse in a couple of verses in Luke chapter 2. Simeon was an old man. He was a man who had waited for the consolation of Israel, we're told. He was waiting for the return of Messiah and the Spirit had told him he would not die until he saw Messiah come to the temple. Fulfillment of Haggai. He was waiting for that fulfillment. Where is that glory? Where is Messiah? And they brought this baby in to dedicate him, Jesus, shortly after he was born and brought him into the temple and says in verse 28 of Luke chapter 2, He, Simeon, took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The promised glory had come to this very temple as this little baby Jesus, the Messiah, who walked there. There was greater glory than in Solomon's temple because Messiah walked there. You see, God's promise to them also reflects His promise to us that when we serve Him and we follow Him, that God in His mysterious way will endow our efforts with glory, with His very presence to accomplish His Purposes. We may never see the result, but he promises his presence and his glory in our efforts. Think of that little boy when Jesus was teaching the multitudes, thousands on the hillside, and they were hungry, and Jesus said, get them something to eat, and the disciples said, we don't have anything. He said, what do you have? He said, well, this little boy, <laughs> he has five loaves and two fish. Jesus said, have them all sit down in groups. He prayed, he gave thanks, he distributed it, and that meager offering from that little boy was multiplied by God so that they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. 
God has a way of doing that with us, folks. You, you think you're not accomplishing anything. You think what you're doing is insignificant. But if your heart is set to follow God and serve Him, God will fill your efforts with glory. You may not see it, but He will. <laughs> when you reach out to a hurting friend, when you write a note of encouragement, when you serve in a ministry, either at Cole or in the community, when you help chat with someone who's homeless, whatever it might be, when you're serving God, God fills it with glory. Howard Hendricks was born into a broken home, raised by his grandmother. His grandfather, as he says, was a drunk. Teacher in school said that he was for sure going to end up in the penitentiary. And Howard Hendricks says this, Walt came down my street one day looking for boys for his Sunday school class. Well, anything that had school in it was bad news for me. <laughs> then he said, well, how would you like to play marbles? That was different. So this tall drink of water, Walt, stooped down and whipped me in every game. I lost my marbles early in life, Howard Hendricks chuckles. <laughs> But no matter where Walt was going, Howard Hendricks wanted to go. This man, Walt, with barely a sixth grade education, loved boys in a way that drew them irresistibly to Jesus Christ. From a class of 13 boys, eventually 11 of them entered Christian ministry. Howard Hendricks ended up as a professor in Dallas Seminary. He had a heart to disciple people like Walt discipled him. He poured his life into his students. People like Chuck Swindoll, Ray Stedman, David Roper, our former pastor, and many, many, many others who caught that vision that Walt had given Howard to pour their lives into others. And David Roper discipled Brian Morgan who discipled me and I have the opportunity to disciple others. Howard Hendricks died this year, but his legacy goes on. You never know the glory that God will fill your efforts with. Don't give up. Don't let discouragement keep you from putting God first. We'll never see the results, so by faith, let's trust him and persevere. There's another discouragement that God addresses a couple months later as he brings another message from Haggai. And I think this discouragement gets us down. It certainly does me at times. And that's the discouragement of sinfulness. The sense that as I'm serving God, I keep seeing how much I mess up. I'm a mess. I, I can't do it all right. I'm still struggling in areas of my life. You start putting God first and you think somehow that maybe you won't struggle so much with your own sinfulness. And yet you see you still have many of the same old problems. You still get irritated and angry easily. You still have some of your old addictions to deal with. You still struggle with selfishness. And you begin to get discouraged and think, man, I thought if I followed God, life would get easier. I wouldn't struggle so much with my own sin. But again, the truth is you're probably going to struggle more. Satan and your flesh 
are glad to be on the throne of your life. But when you put Jesus on the throne, they're not going to be happy. And the battle will ensue. You're in the midst of the warfare. (laughs) So what is God's response? How does he encourage them as they're working away and they're seeing some of these old sinful patterns and they're beginning to get discouraged? Well, he doesn't take away the struggle. He doesn't take away their weakness spiritually. In fact, what he does in these first few verses is remind them that everything they do is tainted with sin. In verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, so about a couple months later, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does that food become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Well, then Haggai said, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And then he applies it to them. Haggai answered and said, so it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. What, it, what is he saying there? He, he uses this little picture here of the priest and he says, you know, if, if you have something clean and it touches something unclean, does the goodness get transferred or the uncleanness? And the priests answer correctly. They say, well, the uncleanness spreads. What does God do? He exposes the fact that, yeah, my people are a mess. Yeah, everything they touch is tainted. It's like, a jar of clear, beautiful water and you'd put a drop of food coloring in, what happens? That color spreads through the whole thing. Everything's tainted. And he's saying that, in my people, everything's tainted by sin. He doesn't try to cover it up. In fact, he just exposes the reality of that. Yes, I know that's true about my people. That is the truth. That's the reality. But, and he goes on in the next few verses, I won't take time to read them, 15, 16, 17, he says, yeah, and in fact, the hard things you've gone through are because of your sin. There's been some discipline in your life because of that. That is the reality. So what does God do? Well, listen to verse 18 and 19. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. What does God promise? This is the promise of grace. God says, yes, you don't deserve grace. You don't deserve blessing. That's the reality. But my promise to you is that I will give grace, blessing that you do not deserve. You know, as I serve God and try to follow him, it seems the closer I get to him, the more I am aware of my own failings. How often that I do things really to impress other people rather than him. That I'm selfish. 
and those things I still struggle with. But God says to me and to you as we struggle and maybe want to give up because of that, He says, yes, you're a mess, but I'm stepping in and I will give you grace, forgiveness, and my power and my encouragement even in the midst of that. In fact, and here's something we need to grasp, your weakness is part of my plan, God says, so that I get the glory, not you. You know that wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're weak. We struggle. We're broken. But it's part of God's plan to place himself, his life, in these weak vessels that we have so that, the passage says, the surpassing greatness of the power might be of him and not of us. So that he would get the glory Does he want us to keep struggling against sin? Absolutely. But he doesn't take it away right away so that we'll know we need him every moment. And as we cling to him, he in a mysterious way releases his glory and he is praised for what happens through us even though we're a mess. There's that great promise in the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 28. For God causes all things, all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even tough circumstances, yeah. Even my own struggles and failures, well, all things. It's all part of God's plan. He works it in for his purposes. So how does God encourage us when we're discouraged by our own struggles with sin? He says, yeah, you're a mess but rely on my grace. My grace is there for you. My forgiveness is there. And realize I can do great things even through a struggling servant. So don't give up. (laughs) Keep going. The final discouragement I see in this passage is addressed in these last few verses. And this is another discouragement that I tend to struggle with. It's where you're trying to serve God and it's, you know, it's, you're moving ahead, but you start seeing the bigger picture and you think, what good is it that we're doing because evil seems to be winning in the world? We're losing the war. And immorality is spreading. People are embracing gay marriage, etc. People are more and more calling evil good and calling good things evil. To many, Christianity is something evil today. People keep doing horrible things to one another. Addictions are expanding. Technology, which can be used to do great good, is being used to control, to spy on others, to create drones to destroy people, and on and on and on. Injustice reigns. The world's not fair. Leaders are corrupt. And that can get overwhelming at times. We can begin to feel like, I just want to protect myself, stay safe, secure, have the best life I can, and hope that Jesus comes back soon. 
But God doesn't want us to live that way. He wants us to live with courage, expanding the kingdom, realizing He is at work. You see, this is the problem of hopelessness that can discourage us and make us want to give up. What's God's response? Let me read verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's he say when we feel like evil's winning? He says, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still the Lord of hosts. And he gives the promise of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here, and it's beginning to expand, and God is beginning to shake out the nations. They were under the power, in Haggai's day, of the Persian nation. What happened to it? Destroyed. They were under the power of Greece. Destroyed. Under the power of Rome. Destroyed. And ultimately, there's that promise that one day Jesus will come, set up his kingdom on earth, and Armageddon is real. It will happen. All the nations will be overthrown, and Messiah will come and set up his eternal kingdom. Therefore, he says, even your efforts today as you serve in little ways and love others and call up that person who's hurting, etc., I will fill it with glory and I will use it to expand my kingdom and prepare the way for Messiah. So don't give up. There's this little statement to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a nobody. He was a governor appointed under the power of the Persian government had no power really, but he was descended from King David. Remember the promise that came to King David that said, one of your descendants will be Messiah. We'll set up an eternal kingdom that will reign forever. God comes to Zerubbabel and says, I'm going to make you like a signet ring, that sign of authority, of power, that they would put a seal in wax with their ring to say, this is my authority, this is my power. And he's saying, Zerubbabel, you or one of your descendants will ultimately reign. Don't forget that promise. I'm renewing that promise. Kingdom is coming. It's already coming. It's already here. I promise to make all things right and to use your efforts, Zerubbabel, as part of the plan. He wants to use us as part of the plan. So don't give up, he says. Keep serving. Keep building the kingdom. I will fill you with glory. I will use you in this world, whether you can see it or not. You see, when we commit to following Jesus and serving him first, really putting him first in our lives, life may not get easier. In fact, it probably will get harder. But if we are going to find encouragement in the midst of that, we need to be careful not to be looking at circumstances, 
but to look at the promises of God. To make sure that we're looking at circumstances through God and what He says. And remember, God's doing things that we can't even see way beyond our circumstances. So let's persevere and keep serving Him and following Him and loving Him. Rather than getting overwhelmed by our circumstances and losing sight of God. How can we persevere? By hanging on to the promises of God. Remember His promise to be with us, to be in us, to fill our efforts with glory as He lives through us. He promises to give us grace in our failings. And eventually, in His timing, He promises to make all things right by using us, (laughs) these weak vessels, as part of His wondrous, glorious, grace-filled plan to bring in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, this is uh, an amazing passage. We admit we easily get discouraged because we get overwhelmed by the circumstances around us and by our own struggles in life. But may we learn to see life and our circumstances through your promises, through the reality of what you are doing. And to cling to that and be encouraged to persevere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.